You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This is episode 19 of The Boost with my guest, Lance Fulski from Pure Mixed Strategy. Let's go. Welcome to The Boost, conversations with people promoting mental health. And I'm delighted to be here with Lance Fulski. He's the CEO of Pure Mixed Strategy. He comes with a lot of experience uh, as a CEO and SVP of ops um, from, from behavioral health organizations uh, in the hospital setting and also the RTC side. So Lance, it's awesome to have you with you today. I'm so glad you're on the show. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful and I appreciate the opportunity to be here. I certainly was glad to connect with you last year at the marketing conference. And ever since then, I've enjoyed watching your content and I reached out to you because I was hoping that I could contribute in some way. Man, yeah, we've we've been talking here for 30, 30 minutes ahead of time. And I'll tell I guarantee anybody listening that you're going to learn something from Lance. I've learned a, a page full of notes from Lance. So just to set out from the uh, the beginning, who's the student and who's the master here? Lance has got a, just a depth and breadth of experience in the behavioral health space. And, um, you know, we'll get into a couple sort of tee off questions, but he made one, a great point, which is, yeah, you did, you did come to the mental health marketing conference. It was awesome to meet you there. And I struggle with that just as the name of the conference, you know, you can't call it everything and have it fit onto a website. You can't, it can't be the behavioral health, mental health, addiction treatment center, marketing growth and business development and admissions outcomes <laughs> conference. It just doesn't, it's not easy to say, but we, there's so many segments within segments of the care and the continuum of care and what hospitals are trying to do and for-profit and non-profit. And I'd love to get into just some of, some of your experience with all of that, but yeah, all that just to tee up for the audience that so this is going to be a, a really cool time to learn from you. Yeah, I appreciate it. I guess we'll probably just to give some context, I'll start with, start with the beginning. Like I had said, I got a degree as a therapist. I was intending, hoping to be Dr. Phil. I imagined myself in a private practice. I started working in a, I just happened upon a job because I needed one in grad school to be a tech at a psych hospital. And lo and behold, that led me down an executive leadership path to ultimately become a CEO. So I had gotten put in that path. I got moved around the country in different positions in different markets, learning all the different, you know, all the different pathologies and levels of care throughout the universal health services hospital system. So tech to CEO with universal health services, CEO for a few years there. And, and among that journey, of course, is seeing every pathology. You've got everything from eating disorder to autism, to sexually reactive children, the sex offenders adjudicated and acute uh, psychiatric and the substance abuse, and then moved to Tennessee for a COO as active working with active duty military. And that was a really fascinating journey. 
announced with me CEO in, in South Dallas facility for a couple of years, then worked with another facility with Springstone for a few years as CEO, and then worked with another facility with Sun for a year, and then was senior vice president of operations for a few years with that organization, Sun, kind of overseeing multiple hospitals and contributing to PL and operations. And so I've pretty much had every job inside of a hospital, and I certainly have learned and honed my skills to perfect the levers of just about every metric inside of a hospital, which is kind of where we are today, as I consider myself an expert in this space of you know, behavioral hospital and addiction treatment center space. And that is all things operations from front door to back door, clinical degree with a business acumen. So I get called on today and have projects to support facilities and supporting just about any area that they have an opportunity in from the front door to the back door. So mm -hmm. it's been a very cool journey, very blessed journey, and I'm anxious to see where it goes from here. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We were talking about the book range, which is about how generalists thrive in a specialized society. And it's, it can't, I don't think it can be overstated the importance of understanding the context, you know, understanding the shot basically. And it's one thing to roll into a new town and meet the mayor and think, you know, what's going on in town. And it's another thing to have lived there for 20, 30 years. And you, you know, you know, you know where the bodies are buried as they say. So, you know, you've, you've seen it from tech to executive leadership. You've seen it across different organizations and we see moves being made in the industry. Like you mentioned Springstone, you know, which was acquired by LifePoint hospitals. What is that sort of, what is that acquisition signal in the market? Like talk a little bit about how health systems and, and hospitals are are thinking about behavioral health today. It's a, it's a fascinating topic to me because the health systems are some of the most resourced and best positioned brands and maybe the first call that a lot of people make. And then we have this whole, you know, this whole other arm of behavioral health. So what is, what is a move like that signaling that hospitals are thinking? So I think, you know, if you kind of rewind the clock, a little bit, you you'd always would see, you know, behavioral health kind of started as a way to sort of address those complicated cases in the ED. And you still see this today. A lot of medical acute care hospitals, they have maybe a, a wing or they have a process to sort of triage or decant their EDs from the site patients. This is some of this is some of their primary objectives. Some of the largest companies have a behavioral health division that's solely there to serve as getting the psych patients out of the ED because they can sort of, you know, they can sort of get stuck in the ED because that's where that's where most people get a lot of their care from is they go to the, the local ED and then they get sort of triaged and end up in a, in a psych bed and then ultimately, you know, referred out or, or moved out into the community. So I think you have different different companies sort of take that opportunity differently. Some of them, you know, if you get on the front side of, of behavioral health, if you keep people well enough, if you offer resources, you can prevent hospitalization. And then in the other way, you know, if you kind of look at the life points or some of the other strategic partnerships that there are, 
they see it as a, a complementary or adjacent continuum to, to their level of care, which which I, I think is, is is more accurate. I think that that's more accurate to say that that these are separate. These are not interrelated necessarily. You know, folks that have psych or mental health or addiction issues, you know, their their medical presentation oftentimes can be can be a bit misaligned. It can generally it can sometimes the primary reason for presentation is is this is the psych, and you have to kind of rule that out and stabilize for that before you even get to medical, even if there is medical. So to answer your question, I think mm. that depending on how you see that continuum, different companies see the psych piece as either a complement to their portfolio or a way to filter their portfolio, depending on how they acknowledge that in, in, their, in their company. So those are sort of the differentiations that I see. You've got some companies that uh, contract with or create a behavioral health entity so that it can keep patients out of the ED because they need those beds for other things. Mm -hmm. And then you have other companies that realize that this is actually its own service line. This deserves its own service line because this is a unique and, you know, this is a unique pathology by itself. So I think those are, those are a couple of different ways to look at it because you'll have freestanding companies like many of the ones that I've worked in where we sort of align with the local ED. And, you know, we become their partner, you know, because they'll say they don't have the expertise or the resources to do that. And, you know, the reimbursements are different and, you know, the milieus are different. So those, are, those patients are not, the, they're not the same. And that's one of the, you know, that's one of the arts of creating a milieu is the degree to which you can get a person to be in a milieu that's similar to their own pathology, mm -hmm. the easier it is to manage. When you start having, when you start, when you start mixing pathologies, you know, whether it's in, in forgive me, but whether it's a, a gender or a substance abuse or a socioeconomic status, those, those are different people. Those are different presentations. You know, the person that's, you know, individually wealthy and has resources, they have different expectations than, you know, than the person that, that doesn't have as many resources. So it can be a mistake to try to manage all those folks inside the same milieu. So the better you can separate that, and that goes for EDs or, you know, freestanding, the better you can separate folks by sort of their presentation and pathology, the easier it is to create a place people want to work and a place patients want to come to to get treatment. Mm -hmm. Long answer yeah. to your question, but great. that'll happen a lot. Yeah. And, and to, to add on to that, not, not just preference, but, you know, different stressors, you know, you, you brought up ahead of time, SDOH or, or uh, social determinants of health, you know, and I guess the question becomes somewhat about limited resources and, and trade-offs and opportunity costs, because how, how segmented do you want to get? I see this, I see this in a, you know, in the marketing practice of segmentation and persona development, you know, let's say, and I've seen some of the best and brightest creative agencies out there throw hundreds of thousands of dollars into hundreds of profiles. And 
I don't know, sometimes it's just head scratching and, and that's typically work that's not saving lives, you know, but in this case where you're, you're, you know, trying to do no harm and, and trying to find affinity and, you know, segmentation basically is another way to say that milieu, like how, what are the, what are the limitations that you're seeing on how deep or segmented we can get based on the business realities of life and the hospital setting and the need to have it be a, a profitable venture or at least a sustainable venture? Most of these conversations sort of stem around the conversation of, of like beds per capita or, or this concept of saturation, we'll call it. Many entities are in the market at the same time. And then you're always asking yourself, well, what's your competitive advantage? Yeah. So I think the more, the more we come together as a community, even when we're competitors, there are ways to treat these populations where everybody can get the patients that they need. But what happens is we generally end up competing for the same patients. And I think you have to sort of zoom out a little bit and look at who are we? You know, wh what's our profile? You know, wh what do we treat well? And that's based upon who your physicians are what your resources are, your capacity, the physical plant that you have. I mean, you have to sort of choose an identity, if you will, not to say that you can't treat all people in some way, but you're going to naturally be able to treat some people in a better way based on the location of your facility, right? If you're in the Northern part of a Metroplex, you're more likely to get folks in that geography. Same with the opposite. If you're in the Southern part of a Metroplex, you're going to get folks similar to that geography, the, 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 how you can be synergistic and create a complementary or maybe an alternative uh, opportunity or option for that, for the patients in that community. That's where I think there's, there's plenty of patients, but you can't be something that you're not, you know, oftentimes people will go after, you know, what's, what's most profitable just sure. from like a business standpoint, we'll go after, you know, the lowest hanging fruit is, you know, who, who reimburses the most? And that's generally going to be, you know, if there's, there's, a, there's a hierarchy of, of reimbursement. You know, um, you know, commercial is generally associated with being, you know, higher reimbursement. And you've got, you know, Medicare. And then, of course, there's Medicaid and managed Medicaid. And so there's, there are obvious tiers of patients. And so most folks generally go after the, the, those that are higher reimbursed because it just it makes sense. And then there's also an association, of course, with, you know, there being a, a higher functioning milieu. If you have, if you 100% of your, your milieu is high functioning people with, you know, commercial insurance, then that looks a certain way. Mm -hmm. and, and, and conversely, if, you're, if your milieu is, uh, you know, lower functioning and lower socioeconomics, that milieu looks a certain way. So it's not that you can't be both. I just, it's generally smarter to choose an identity and to sort of embrace it. And again, if you're, you know, really smart, you come together as a community and there are ways that, you know, this facility is well positioned to go after, say, you know, geriatric or, or adults and, and maybe children and adolescents aren't being served. So, you know, maybe we should, you know, you do a market analysis, you can see kind of who's going after what, but what oftentimes happen is people go after the same types of patients and we end up sort of jockeying and sort of cycling the same patients amongst all the facilities and you'll find 
patients that have been to every facility in the market because it's it's very it's very cyclical. So I think sometimes you know we do a poor job of that. But you know the the market share that we all have to chase based on you know what what sort of you know, revenues or our, our budgetary uh, strategic planning budgets sort of determine the census that you go after, which can determine the patients or the you know the the folks that you serve in a community. So. There's a lot of ways to get that to that answer of, you know, who you should treat. Of course, it should be based upon like what you're most equipped to treat, which would be your clinical product. But sometimes just like any business is seasonality and you end up having to pivot sure. and go a different direction. Yeah. Supply and demand. And, and that, that also, I think lends itself to like a continued trajectory of acquisition and merging and consolidation. And I've worked in healthcare marketing for quite a while. And I saw this happen across lots of specializations and, and service lines, you know, ophthalmology used to be like the mom and pop, you know, approach and dentistry has been going through it and, you know, private equity behind it, of course, which like to your point, pre-call, you know, the, the P and L and the, the ROI expectations are quite a bit different when you're funded through that. And, and you're going to be speaking at the invest conference in October. I'm a huge fan of behavioral health business and the events they put on. And you're going to be talking with Nick Jaworski. I know for sure. I forget all the panelists, but about sort of growth and marketing. And, you know, that's, that's kind of where my head has been at. Of course, there's access challenges. Of course, there's payment challenges, but it's, there's kind of a paradox too, because you're also, you just made a point about we're kind of going after the same patient. So, you know, at the end of the day, you know, the, the Peter Drucker thought is there's, there's marketing and there's innovation and everything is cost otherwise, you know, so where, where do you see marketing really needing to level up and improve and where do you see marketing as a waste like where do you see the dollars sort of being thrown away based on just the reality of market conditions so the one would be where do you see either we need to continue to improve or grow marketing because of market dynamics and then where do you see just sort of money going down the drain yeah so this is a this is a great debate and i'm sure a lot of people have a lot of opinions about yeah. it Mine happens to be that I think we'll use kind of a chicken or the egg analogy here. I think that the, your clinical product has to be sound. I think I always use this phrase. You have to start inside the walls. The folks that are out in the community talking about what you're doing. If, if what's going on inside the wall, isn't, isn't sound, you know, if you don't have a good clinical product, then I think, you know, the, the business development or marketing team, they can only do so much to sort of keep those relationships fluid or to pacify folks that are not happy with the outcomes of people having gone through your program. So I, I always argue that that has to come first. I don't agree with the fact that a, a really strong business development or marketing team, you know, has better outcomes if there, if business development and marketing is sound and tenured and, and savvy, but your clinical product is poor, that formula never is a higher ROI to me than the reverse. Mm -hmm. The reverse is that you have a good, a sound clinical product. And then, you know, by virtue of people getting better, 
there's a there's a residual there's a residual effect of that in your market and and if you're if you're good at what you do that you don't have to be as good at marketing per se you don't need to be out there with banners and billboards and sign spinners if you have a good product that that is the core to me and and sometimes you know people disagree with me there are obviously some great metrics and resources that you need to put into marketing right and if nobody knows we're there then it doesn't matter how good our product is and and there's certainly a digital strategy that supports a lot of our effort because that's how that you know that's how today's generation finds goods and services is through the internet so you know it's a and both it's a and both your product inside the walls has got to be good it's got to be you know sound clinically it's got to be a program where people get better it's got to be and then if it's a program where people get better then people will want to work there and if people will want to work there then people will want to get treatment there and so on and so forth but i think that always has to come first as opposed to people can kind of spend a lot of money on the marketing team and at marketing events you know out there talking about what you know what they think that we do and there's often a disconnect there you know, often we've got folks that are out there talking about our program, but they've never sat in a group and they don't necessarily know the intricacies of a day in the life of a patient, but, but they can they can have those relationships sometimes. So I always argue as an operations person, you know, my core focus, the core focus is inside the walls first, that it's got to be a sound clinical product. Otherwise, what are you selling? What are you marketing? So we can do the ad spend and the digital strategy. And we can be at all, you know, go to the Chamber of Commerce and sit on all the initiatives in the community. We can do all that, and that's fine. But if the if inside the walls isn't sound, what are what are you selling? What a common. So think- that's a that's a common. That's a that is a universal truth too. I mean, it it can apply to so many businesses or industries, and you see those you see those organizations absolutely propped up with marketing and it's it's like a hollow egg inside you know once you experience the brand promise versus the brand experience and i think that's a one useful definition of brand is what you're promising you'll experience once you get inside the doors or inside the store or whatever it is so but you do also see you know the you you build it and they will come approach can be squared i think the impact can be squared and i i kind of like reference it on an xy axis like you can sort of raise the drawbridge of an operationally sound organization to actually square the results but if it's all marketing and there's there's nothing you know underneath that then it just kind of falls but i think that's where organizations take ground really is is the is those two horses you know pulling the chariot of marketing and operations and and it has to be balanced because if your operations are just way outshining your growth strategy, then you're you're burning capital on underutilization. And then if your marketing is just burning bridges and there's no clinical backbone to it, then or poor poor backbone to it, then you know there, that's just as the bad of a problem. So, wh- what about outcomes? Though you mentioned you mentioned outcomes, where are where are sort of the the gains? What's your just what's their general take on what seems like an evolving, still evolving conversation around efficacy and and outcomes in this industry and the work we're doing? 
I think it's the right conversation to be having about outcomes, not just, you know, not just that patients are in our treatment, but how are we doing and, and how do you prove it? I mean, I think that's the right conversation. It's still a bit loose. You know, there's still, there's still like anticipatory uh, KPIs metrics that are going to be piled onto contracts. And some of them are already, some of the contracts already, you know, the, the insurance contracts already have KPIs that include either a withhold, meaning if you don't perform at this level, you know, we subtract an amount or, you know, you can get a little bump, you know, 5% or 10%, you can get a bump if you perform at, at this level. So I think that's the right conversation to have around, you know, around in, in that it's in the right spirit of doing best by the patient. I think that's the right conversation. It's still kind of loose. You know, one of the, one of the toughest, one of the toughest outcomes to track yet the most common is 30 day readmissions. 30 day readmissions, probably one of the most common metrics that's in most, most contracts. And it's difficult. It's difficult. It's difficult to track down. It, it's not because it's not the right topic. It's because that population readmits because they're they're inherently difficult to manage the folks that are readmitting the most are the ones that that need the wraparound services but they're also the ones that we can't get a hold of they're also the ones that don't have phones and you know when you try to you know you set up appointments and you try to insulate their path you know you feel like you're working harder than they are so you know the outcomes it's the right conversation and i think as we continue to refine what those outcomes should be i think we'll get better at it. I think there maybe should be a tier based upon, you know, based upon their SDOH or their, you know, their screening at the front door, there should maybe be a tier of an expectation on their, on their outcomes from the back door, just be, simply because some folks have, have barriers that other, other, other people don't. And so with, you know, relatively speaking, and I've always used this phrase as well, you have to manage people within their resources. And that doesn't sound good to hear, but that's reality. That's a reality that, you know, some people don't have benefits for RTC. So if you're in a hospital and you happen to not have an RTC residential treatment center benefit, you can't go. It's not that that might not be the best clinical recommendation, but you have to manage people within their resources. And sometimes that just means they don't have the same menu that everyone else has. So. I think it's the right conversation, but it's it's difficult to enforce. It's difficult to enforce the the outcomes, but but that's where we're going. We're going to outcomes based, you know, reimbursement to where your ability to perform these is going to determine, you know, the the reimbursement that you get. And I think it's I think it's fair. Sure, it's complicated, but it's fair because one of the largest you know one of the largest issues is housing. And so, you know, you, you get penalized if there's not readmission, but then there's also like as a for-profit, for example, like you, you struggle to get, you know, funding for, for housing. You, you don't get, you know, you don't get additional subsidies for housing. So it's hard. You can only help so much, but you're also penalized, you know, if they readmit. And the reason that they readmit is because of housing, but you don't have access to funds to support housing. And so it, it gets complicated to figure out to, you can create creative solutions to overcome for people to help support them when, you know, the rules are, are different depending on your legal status or, you know, for-profit, not-for-profit, you don't have the same access. So 
It's the same. Still- it's the same in the bio side where, you know, there's like a sliver of patients that are rising risk, critically complex and massively expensive, expensive, you know, and you could, you can draw that out to, you know, the top five or 10% of patients. And you look at just the immense amount of, of hospital bills that they're responsible for, or that come their way, not that they're necessarily responsible for them, but it's, it's gotta be, it's gotta be a similar distribution. I would imagine, I don't know, but across like, you know, serious mental illness and, and the importance of the the basics, like having a place and having people around you, having purpose, you know, having work, having your paperwork in order, you know, try, try keeping your birth certificate when you're homeless, you know, and, and you could list a thousand other challenges. What, what about, man, this is Lance, this is so good. Like, this is good for me. I think this will benefit everybody, but like, I'm, I'm, tracking with you and learning a lot as I go. And I'm just going to ask, continue to ask just some big questions because you've got some answers that are fascinating to me. What about the payer conversation? You kind of touched into that with quality of care, just kind of outline where you see things on a macro. Why has it been difficult to kind of get the payers on board? Or is that really the case? Is there, is there more progress than, than we sometimes hear complaints about? Like, what's your perspective on, on health plans and payers adopting more mental health and behavioral health care? Well, there's a, like you said, that's a, that's a broad question. There's a lot, lot within, within that, I'll just give a couple of reactions in that space. If I can back up to something I had referred to in our pre, in our pre conversation. Yeah, please. We should have really recorded that. That was, that was the gem too, but they'll get this one. Yeah. The healthcare exchange, right? I mean, when that when that word of that came out, everybody we got as as providers, we got really excited, thinking, you know, that we're that all those folks that didn't have you know resources are going to have resources now, and so this is good. And and then you saw you saw a, a large expansion into the hospital space in anticipation of that. Part of that surge was because now we have more covered lives, you know. So this is good. But then as you started to as those folks started to show up at your doors, you realized they were disaster plans. You know, they were, you know, the deductibles were so high that it, it didn't even touch. It didn't even, you know, they, they couldn't chew into their deductible before they would pay for the cost of services. So it ended up as bad debt anyway. And so you, you still were left in that same situation where, you know, yes, they have insurance, but it's actually not helpful to them until, you know, unless it's a disaster. So that was sort of those those were mixed feelings about about having having those benefits in in that way. So I think that course, that sort of set the tone in the in the recent past around just the well some of the mistrust. It's always been it's always been there a little bit. But as you know move you know move ahead ten years and 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 so today I think what we're seeing is there's there's a lot more types of plans that are being offered that are competitive with commercial commercial plans. And so there's a lot of there's a lot of different options that that people have, you know, in that same in that same vein, the you know, the increases haven't kept up with inflation. And so it's been a stalemate to get payers to to increase the rates and, and, and you know, let alone in the averages, you're, you're trying to ask for two to three percent a year. And then here in the recent past with inflation, that's 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 not been enough. 
and there's not been, you know, good, bad, or indifferent. There's not been a, like willingness. There's not like a, the payer is never leading the conversation on, we, you know, we think we should have an adjustment here. They're never good. They're never leading that conversation. So now you're sort of looking at your, your margins and you have to, you know, look inside your P&L and say, well, where's this coming from then? And then simultaneously, you know, wages go up, right? Because we just the shift in the labor pool. So wages are up, you know, inflation's obviously up, but the reimbursement isn't keeping up. So then, you know, that, that erodes your margins, which some people not find, you know, might not find that interesting, but I mean, that is how, you know, that is how hospitals and clinics stay alive is on, is on us on those margins. And so when you start to cut into that, mm. you know, that's when you have to make those adjustments where once upon a time, your staffing ratio might be a, a one to 10, you know, now you've got to go to one to 12, which might seem minuscule to some people. But I mean, that's the difference between, you know, someone being watched that's on the higher level of care and, and, and not because you don't, you don't have the bodies because you had to increase that ratio. So you know, there's been some pretty dramatic moves from some of the larger players in the space to sort of jockey for network adequacy, where the payers are saying, we're not giving them, you know, you're not getting a, a raise, you're not getting this much. And then they have to threaten to say, well, then we'll just pull out of, you know, and then you're, you know, you're, your constituents, your members will be out of network and then can't get served here. And there's this sort of back and forth of, you know, the cycle of where, where patients can go then. So it's been ugly, you know, uh, you'd like to think that it's become more collaborative with some of the outcomes, but, you know, in the last several years, it's, you know, we've, there's been concepts like at risk where you sort of go into a partnership with a payer and say, you know, I have these outcomes, therefore I should be able to leverage my outcomes and get a better rate. But it's not, it's not been that collegial. I mean, you know, you'd, you'd like to think that we're all in this together, but I assure you it, it generally doesn't, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel that way when you're, when you're running the business, when you're calling that insurance to say one of your members shows up here and they need treatment and, and, you know, you're sort of having to play chess with them to, to, to get medical necessity criteria you know, and you've got the person on the other end of the phone and you're describing a, a lethal event and they're sort of challenging, well, how lethal is it and when did it happen? So there's there's a pretty, it can be adversarial at times, the relationship between payer and provider. So I, I wish we were, and I wish we were more successful and more progressive. There are some, some relationships that are more collegial than others, um, but in a lot of ways, they seem to be pretty far apart. And we're sort of battling the economics of inflation against their margins. Mm. And, you, and you can tell, and it, and it feels that way. Mm. Well, there's always the debate if the sort of the two-party approach, you know, drags the, drags the chariot forward a little bit like the, the marketing and ops horses running in slightly different directions with the same kind of tension moves things forward, albeit maybe more slowly than we would like if they were running parallel. And we, I mean, I worked for a, a firm, a marketing firm that was brilliant at issues and crisis and what they would do for a health system. It was almost always for the, the care side is come in sometimes at the 11th hour during negotiations with payers and health plans, and they would change the story in the community 
And it was, it was an, and talk about chess. I mean, talk about very high level, super high risk reward conversations. And, and we would successfully do that through sometimes marketing or, you know, direct mail campaigns or websites and stories that are told it's fascinating. And so to see the, to see that same tension, you know, be the case. I'm, I'm not surprised at all, but it does feel like there's a big delta between some of the most complex situations and just the burden on. That's the problem is like, whose, whose ownership is that, you know, right. and without some kind of federal blanket plan or something, you know, Who's, who's catching, who's catching those patients and, and those members, if it's not some kind of accountable care organization or, you know, some kind of capitation or, or, you know, a payment for quality, those are great, you know, those are great options. I think great steps in the right direction, but man, it's too complex for me. That's, that's for sure. <laughs> I get out of my depth pretty quickly. Yeah, it's the right conversation to have. You know, I think there's a lot of efforts. There's a lot of initiatives around trying to, you know, trying to do the right thing. But of course, everybody has their own lens of arriving at that definition of what's what's the right thing. And there's arguments to be made on on both sides. I mean, after all, you know, probably 20 to 25 percent of a hospital or a treatment center's admissions are readmissions. So on the one hand, you know, the paradox is that you know, you've got folks that readmit, which says maybe your, your clinical product wasn't, didn't, you didn't, it, the outcome wasn't as we all had hoped. But on the other hand, it's fourth year business. So the incentive, like, you know, there's a, there's a mixed incentive there. I mean, you obviously want to improve your outcomes so that you do the right thing, but you know, the better, the better you handle your, you know, your discharge planning and preventing readmissions, you're all, you better find 20%. You're eating you your own margin. You're eating in your own margin. So those hmm. are, you know, they're just real, they're real conversations, right, wrong, or different. It's a, it's a reality, you know, you know, readmissions is a category in everybody's CRM for a reason, you know, it's going to happen, but it's also an indication that you've got some work to do on your, your discharge planning and preventing hmm. readmissions. So mm -hmm. they're the right conversations, you know, where they go, of course, is very dynamic, but I think I think that the right people are getting to the table to at least have the discussions and it's headed in the right way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's, yeah, there's, there's a funny comparison that comes to mind for like sports, like time of possession, you know, it's like in the, in the middle of games, time of possession is important when the game is close. Typically, you know, you're owning control, you're going to win. On the other hand, in the extreme cases, time of possession probably drops off significantly because you're getting beaten or you're winning so easily that you don't need the ball that long, you know? Right. So uh, it's like there's a maybe an inverse bell curve of when re the readmission rate is serving people and then when it's telling maybe the opposite story because, yeah. And then, and then to the point about eating into your own profit margin, you know, no business wants to cut 20, 25% out of their, out of, out of their top line, not to mention if it's profitable work. So, hmm. Oh yes. One thing I wanted to co cover the name of your company. You've mentioned chess. Do you play chess? I do play chess. Yeah. I could, I could have guessed that. 
My, yeah. I'm teaching my daughter chess. She's eight. And the benefits are amazing to chess. I mean, it teaches you math and creativity and the next bounce of the ball. That's right. There's a phrase that resonates empirical creativity, right? It's using that, you know, the statistical and logical part of your brain to make creative decisions, empirical creativity. I think that's the essence of, of chess is not just what you do, but why. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, what you do and why, and your company's pure mixed strategy, which comes from game theory, which is, I mean, it'd be connected to chess certainly, but also you know, other things in life. Talk a little bit about that, that phrase and why you picked it as your, your company name. Yeah. So pure mixed strategy are decision theorems that are used in game theory. It's just, you know, there are a couple of sequences of decision making uh, theorems. Ultimately, you know, what these are is this focuses on the sequence of payoff matrix and just considering, you know, like you have two, two players or two participants in a game and you have to sort of assess the payoff matrix or like, you know, the upside of making either decision and, and in which quadrant. So, you know, the essence of that is, is, is in game theory, which is the science of strategy. And that is essentially just, you know, having again, empirical creativity, it's the, it's the numerics and the science behind the decisions that you make. So it's thinking, it's thinking about the decision beyond the decision and the impacts of that decision on, on the next decision. So I, I think it also is, a, is an, an algorithm, if you will, in decision-making and just making sure that you're, you're, you're checking, you know, you're looking at every angle when you make a decision, not just mm -hmm. that it's, you know, straightforward, but it's what, what flanks each of the decisions that you make. Yeah. Have you read against the gods? Have you read that okay. book? Oh, okay. It, it talks a lot about risk and how we came to know the mathematics of, you know, the, the mathematics of the shell game, for example, like that used to be a game that like magicians would make money on because people just didn't do the math on right. this thing costs me $1 and you know, it's $2 if I win. And, you know, on average, the guy who's doing the game is going to win two out of three times. And it's just like, it's just like, we're, you know, we're not necessarily so aware of how mathematics can play into, into how we, how we square our opportunities. You know, we were talking earlier about that book range and, you know, the example that comes to my mind is, yeah, one times a hundred is very different than two times 99. You know, you just subtract one number from one and add it to the other, but you're like almost doubled up, you know? So we, we have a hard time understanding how to compound gains and what that means on the, on the upside and the downside, why things go bad really fast. And that's where my, that's where my heart and my head go to the, the, the most complex most serious conditions like we have to have a better solution than or do we my mind goes we have to have a better solution for the most complex simply because they can go so bad we we don't even know how to estimate you know necessarily how bad or how expensive something can get we're looking always at sort of the the standard deviations but not sort of the the unknown unknown about i don't know the worst cases that's right. And so, you know, when I think of the application of game theory, I, I think of game theory as the science and, you know, uh, and then if you embed emotional intelligence into that science, 
there sort of in lies the framework of what we do, which is, you know, trying to create good, you know, good debates and good paths in, in the topic of human condition, right. And treating people better. So it's applying, you know, math and logic to a very sometimes emotional and illogical space, which is behavior. Behavior can be so infinite. And then you try to apply, you know, statistics and logic to behavior. And those are not mutually exclusive. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's maybe the, the chaos that, you know, you can't, you can't necessarily predict everything that's going to happen 10 bounces away. You know, if you, if you rack up the pool table and you, you break, you know, it's like, good luck, like figuring out where that's going to go, even with the almost exactly the same strike every time it gets so complicated at the margins and with the next bounce of the ball and the next bounce of the ball that, you know, it's hard to predict. Right. But that's, that's also why we have social scientists because that's what we're, you know, that's what we're tasked to do is to get as much information as we can and, and try and do the right thing with it. Right. You take your shots. Yeah. You know, you get the information, you read, you read books like range and you apply that and you learn, right. You either learn, you, you win or you learn. You never mm. lose. You mm -hmm. win or you learn. Yeah, man. Yes. I agree. Well, Lance, it's been, it's been awesome. One last question I usually throw out. Oh, we didn't do, we, you know what? This is the first, we didn't do the virtual hug. So two questions, tell, tell us something you're thankful for somebody you're thankful for, and then tell us something you're, you're reading or listening to. It could be an album. It could be a podcast, a book, whatever. All right. So I think you called this a, the virtual hug, right? Yep. Yeah. The virtual hug certainly would go to my, my daughter. She's five. She's starting kindergarten here pretty soon. Awesome. And, you know, that is just, that is also an infinite, infinite journey. You know, you think that you're going to teach and lead these little lives, but you realize that they're teaching and leading you, you know, you relive your childhood through your kids. So what you experienced as a kid, you don't really have a good memory of, but, but when you get to, you know, when you get to sort of lead and guide, you know, your, your child, I don't know. It's just the greatest blessing most of the time, right? Most, yeah. most days, most of the time it's just, it's the greatest. So, you know, I'll give her certainly my virtual hug. I love that. There's a, yeah, I've got an eight year old and yeah. Talk about the hardest job you'll ever love for sure. And there's a, there's a great book, finite and infinite games. You know, we've talked okay, a lot yeah. about games and the goal of a finite game is to win within the structures of the rules that everybody agrees to. And the, the goal of an infinite game is to keep playing. And that's what I think about with parenting It's like the, the rules actually adapt in order to continue the legacy and to continue this beautiful thing called life, you know, forward well beyond me. And so there's that game too. And it's like, how, how, and where do we play infinite games? Because they don't really pay off. You know, they don't have winners. They have players who keep playing. Um, so there's, there's, there's something little in there, but anyway, that's, yeah. that's a book I'm reading. What are you reading? <laughs> uh, might be cliched. I'm uh, think again, Adam Grant. Yeah. yeah. Pretty, pretty popular one. This is a book I come back to often. I think it, 
you know, the essence of it is just sort of to remind us. Sometimes we learn the most when we, when we allow ourselves to f- drop our, our tools or, or forget everything that we think we know, you know, it reminds you to sort of sometimes like the less you, the less you go into a situation pretending to know, like the more you allow yourself to learn, you know, the better off you are. Sometimes you have to drop the tools that are most comfortable to you in order to have the most growth, put yourself in uncomfortable situations. Cause that's where the most growth is. So think again, it's a good one. I think Adam Grant. Yeah. Phil Knight talks a lot about that and the beginner's mindset, you know, it's kind of a, a concept that goes well beyond Nike, but yeah, just to be able to be empty, you know, start again, start new. Like you said, there's no loss, there's learnings or winnings, but yeah, I, I actually haven't read that book. I've heard that book a hundred times by title. I need to pick it up. So, uh, it sounds good. All right. Good to talk with you, Lance. Educational to talk with you. And I can feel my brain has been stretched just in these 45 minutes. And I hope other people find it just as valuable. But thank you. Hope to see you this year at the conference. Would love to book you as a speaker and and learn more from you in the future. But best of luck with uh, everything you're doing. And thanks for coming on. All right. Appreciate it, Steve. We'll talk to you again soon. Sounds good. Thanks. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.